This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. For those people who are just tuning in, you are listening to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio at SiriusXM Channel 132. I'm Doug Collum. And our, our guest this hour is Linda Crawford, who's the CEO at HelpShift. Linda, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So uh, before we jump into your background, just maybe a thumbnail on what is it that HelpShift does? Yeah, so HelpShift is a customer support platform. We're a software company. We deliver the software as a service, like all startups do today, I believe. And we focus on providing that support for B2C companies who are trying to support their consumers. And uh, our twist on that is we're known for being the leader in digital customer service. So you might say, well, what does digital mean? And legacy digital channels are email or live chat. And what we do is base that support on messaging, either on a website or in an, in an application itself. So I always work on the premise that there are people listening who don't follow tech, but are interested in kind of hearing the different stories that di- different people bring to the table. So maybe you can talk about um, a use case. I mean, find a typical use case and kind of walk us through it kind of blow by blow. What is it as it, as it orients around help shifts products? Think about how you interact with your friends and family today. I'm guessing that device that we all have in our hand most of the time we don't, we don't really call it a mobile phone anymore. We call it a mobile device. It's more Ooh, of a computer yeah, than yeah. it is a phone. Yeah. And think about how you interact with your friends and family. It's probably through messaging, through iMessage, through um, Facebook Messenger, through... Te- texting? Yeah. Well, yeah. Even, even more than texting. It w- texting, a lot of people equate to SMS, which has some technical limitations that I won't go into. Okay, yeah. But if you if you open up me- the messaging app in your iPhone um, or on your Android phone, that is a messaging experience. Mm-hmm. So would it be nice if you could contact your brand, your favorite brand, through an iMessage type interface? So instead of waiting on hold for a long time, um, like we do with the phone or uh, emailing a uh, a support request in or filling out what's called a web form. You've probably been asked for your name and email address, et cetera, et cetera. And you just feel unheard and you feel like you are operating at the brand's convenience rather than your convenience because it inevitably will say, our support hours are Monday through Friday, yeah. nine to five. And the you, auto attendant, yeah. Yeah, and as a working individual, I dread having that support experience because I think, how in the world am I going to schedule my furniture delivery when I'm really busy (laughs) during the day. So could I just send a message to the brand um, and the brand start to work on my behalf and notify me when there's an update to that issue? And that notification and the interaction with the brand is a live communication? It's a... We call it live and asynchronous. So the beauty of our messaging experience is live at times and also asynchronous at times, which means you can leave, the conversation pauses, there's a history of the conversation, and you come back in. And also you get that little notification, you know, wife, sister, brother, grandparent, 
has or friend has something to say back to you. So we don't have to sit around and wait. Yeah. Today's customer support experience, when you think of what's live chat, what happens is you wait for an agent to come online. You do the messaging back and forth. But at you know, if your child falls down and skins their knee or you need to go, all of that investment you've made so far evaporates, it vanishes, and you have to start all over. That's why people go to the phone. So, but because it's asynchronous, or you've 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 provided something that operates in an asynchronous way, that then you can leave the conversation and come back to it later. Yeah, and the brand can re-engage you. So I, this is not kind of where I wanted to go initially because yeah. I want to c- come back to you, Linda. Yeah. But um, w- so that sounds to me like it's well, well, duh. I mean, that's an obvious feature to have, isn't that the way most? I mean, what is it about? help shift that makes it unique? So we feel like we are the only provider of multi-channel asynchronous messaging capability. So in the phone, wow. it it's pretty native to have that experience in the phone. So we built native mobile applications that can sit right within another brand's application. Um, a lot of our gaming customers, for example, were one of the the f- that was the first big industry that really caught on to what HelpShift was doing. Mm-hmm. If you think about a mobile gaming company, their players are in the application itself, and those gaming companies are monetizing those gamers while they're in the app. If they have to go out, um, bring up a web browser, Google search how to get the next g- set of gems, they're out of the game, and then they get distracted, and they don't come back and in. And pissed off. Right. So if you can keep them in the game, then they'll return to the game. They're happy. They got their question answered and away they go. So um, in-app was kind of the first generation of what we were doing. But we brought that same experience onto the web. And today what you find on web chat or live chat, as it's known in our industry, is that synchronous type of chat. And we've brought kind of the messaging style of of uh, back and forth between a brand and a customer right into the web and um, giving you that same history of the conversation, rich text within the conversation, um, the, the pausing capability, all those things. And you're right. Like it just makes a ton of sense. And that's what we're banking on. So, so what is, I mean, if you step back from the trees back up to a hundred thousand feet, how how big is this industry, this customer support industry where you have customers calling or inter- interfacing with their brand because they have a problem with the product or the service? I mean, is it a is there a big sucking sound in the market or is it pretty niched? So the customer support market is $350 billion. Whoa, really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's that's everything from software to humans who are in yeah. gigantic contact centers all around the world. Um, and to the telephony that goes into it. So just the software side of it alone is a $70 billion market. So the market that size, again, I'm, I, I, I promise I'm going to yeah, come back to you. That's fine. But for a market that size, I mean, that is a huge sucking sound. There must be a lot of people crowding into the space trying to figure out how to optimize the customer satisfaction quotient. Right. So there are a lot of legacy providers out there. Think about how we got support in the 80s 
or 70s, for those of you who are around that long. Um, I was. <laughs> I was, too. Um, and we just use the phone. Yeah. The phone is really expensive, the most expensive channel, because it's all powered by humans. I mean, there's a little bit of artificial intelligence, some speech recognition, some routing, you know, press one for a shipping order, what, whatever you might find when you call into a, yeah. you know, a 1-800 number or whatever it might be. Um, and that's about $80 billion just of outsourced human capital. Just the compensation and operating expenses associated just for, with that? Just for, out, you know, when yeah. brands say, I'm going to put, uh, use a third party to deliver my service oh, in see. a, yeah, yeah. you know, wherever, yeah. a small town And there are the companies US. that st- still do that? Oh, yeah. That's mostly what it is today. 65% of all customer service inquiries are phone related. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and then a lot of it is an email and, you know, email's not, not very efficient. Yeah, yeah. Not efficient and not the greatest from a customer point of view. Cause you feel like it just goes into never, never land. You get the automated reply back. Yep. Um, but you don't really know if anything's happening on the back end and days can go by without acknowledgement other than that first yeah. fast yeah. acknowledgement. Um, but what we're trying to do is to reduce the dependency on human capital, the human capital that exists today, make them do smarter things, yeah. make them solve hard cases, have AI um, bots, or we call them like digital workers, yeah. do the kind of simple rote and routine uh, issues that come up over and over again. And the interesting thing about business to consumer is that there's a lot of data in B2C, they're very, very repeatable workflows, so they play really well into leveraging AI techniques and, and, and people. And the, hum, the human component of that, I assume, responds well to AI, to artificial intelligence, when it's used thoughtfully. Right. Is that a fair statement? For sure. I think the trick with combining AI techniques and bots and humans is to conduct a beautiful symphony. And we oh, we think that good. we are doing that. Yeah. Um, and one of if if you've interacted with a bot in the last let's say twelve to eighteen months, many of you may have felt a certain sense of frustration because the bot doesn't understand you and and it keeps asking you to, to repeat, repeat the question. Yeah. What's happening there is that the brand's kind of gone too far and invested too much into natural language processing techniques and try to take the AI capabilities to a level that the models are just not capable of today because the deeper you go into a conversation, the less training data exists yeah, for those I totally get it. You yeah. know, automated models to learn. So our point of view is keep it high level, like do a lot of the detection up front. You know, it's pretty easy for um, kind of the screening process on the front end. Exactly. Yeah. To say, is it an order issue? Is it a shipping issue? Is it yeah, a billing yeah. issue? Those are, That's really easy to understand. Yeah. Then couple that with some kind of workflow or decision tree, which says, okay, now that I know it's a shipping issue, it's pretty simple to infer that I'm going to pull up data on the last shipment made to you as a customer. Mm-hmm. And then to say, oh, well, what, you know, what item was it in what I'm shipping to you? Or... Was it a defect or, you know, what was it that um, 
we should take the next action on. So for people just joining us, you're listening to Business Radio on Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm Doug Collum. I'm speaking with Linda Crawford, the CEO of HelpShift. And so far, Linda, we've, we've spoken to the industry and about HelpShift, but now we get to shift to you um, because I do think this is um, really the unique part of the conversation, which is your background and your experience um, prior to arriving at HelpShift in, what, September of 2017, if, I'm, if I have my dossier correct. You're right. Yeah, so, so tell us about your background. Well, I've been in the computer industry my whole career, dating, if I date myself way back. To Are you the, from the Bay Area? I'm not. I'm originally from Washington, D.C. area. That's okay. where I was raised. I went to college there. I got my MBA there and then moved at, moved to Atlanta for a while and then moved out here in the late 90s. Okay, yeah. I was working for a company called Siebel Systems. Oh, yeah. Um. A really, really successful CRM company. They're iconic. Are they? They're still around today. Or they were acquired sold, by sold Oracle in okay. two thousand four. Yeah. I um I spent eight years there. I joined when there were less than a hundred people and uh, moved out to here to take on a management job. So, what was your expertise in on the on the management side? I mean, what what did you bring to the table when you joined up with Siebel Systems? That's a that's an iconic company. I mean, people who are uh, of my vintage, I know it well because it really was one of the anchors of the tech community here in the Bay Area for a long time. It was one. It was one of the fastest growing companies that really that has ever existed. When I joined in 1996, early 1996, we came off um, 1995 doing eight million in annual revenue, and I was there eight years. We got to 10, eight million. Eight Boy, million. Sounds like a modest amount. Actually. Tiny. Yeah. Um, we we got to. Uh, 10,000 employees roughly in 2 billion and I was there 8 years. So, wow. so talk you, about fast growth. And you were a witness to all of that. Yeah. So I was oh, running cool. I was a sales engineer. So that's a someone on the sales side that knows about the product. Which means it's, it's, it was an outward facing responsibility. You're interacting with customers? Yep. Okay. Trying to get them to understand the technology paired with a salesperson. And then I and then I moved on to the sales side when I when I worked there in sales management, and uh, left there. I can't even remember now. Uh, two thousand four. Yeah. Ish before the acquisition to Oracle. So if you dial forward, what what was the next? What was your next stop? Then I went to a startup for a couple years. Yeah. Um, you know, it was just thirsting for the energy, the the quick pace of it all. Also here in the Bay Area. Um, I was living in the Bay Area, but the company was headquartered back in the East Coast. I learned quickly that not all small companies are startups. Some of them are more lifestyle companies. <laughs> and uh, my, I think that's a work ethic statement. My yeah. West Coast startup DNA, I just recognized that I wanted that thrill, that it's the it's adrenaline like a drug. rush. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted that again. So I, um, having come from Siebel for, Salesforce was after me for a while and yeah. uh, joined a lot of my former colleagues who had been at Siebel at Salesforce. It was a public company. So, when so I joined. let me just be clear. So you 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 took a role with the uh, with the startup company and running sales, for and them. then from there you jumped into Salesforce. I did, and that was back here in the Bay Area. Then it was all in the Bay Area, but okay. my job was headquartered out of you know out of Salesforce headquarters in the city. Okay, yeah, okay. yeah, in two thousand six, and then. 
so what what did you do at Salesforce? I started running the global sales engineering organization, um, kind of taking a step back to what I had done earlier in my career. And I guess that's a lesson learned. Never be afraid to go back to something you know well if you can make a contribution to a fast-growing company. Did you feel in your mind like it was a bit of a regression? Uh, More like bringing a a skill set to the table that you could leverage. I think I looked at it like I could do this job in my sleep. They need this help. And I negotiated really well because they wanted me to join. And I kind of made a bargain with my pre my boss and uh, said, I want to get back onto the sales side after I've done what you need me to do to build this organization. And I ended up not going purely onto the sales side, but running a ton of functions within the sales org. It's kind of like thinking you're the COO of the sales organization, meaning training and enablement, sales engineering, all of our lead gen industries, um, strategy, and IT, a whole bunch of stuff, which was good groundwork for being a CEO. So so give us some context. When you joined up with Salesforce, what year was that then? 2006. So what what was the state of play within the company at that point? Was it, it was pretty small. Was it small? Well, relative to today. Yeah, yeah. I know, but that's give give us Um, some context. Do you remember? Yeah, of course. Um, Still felt so much like a startup, even though we were a public company. 350 million, which seems like a big company, but compared to what it is today, relatively small, mostly focused on small to medium businesses. And I came in with a handful of others to help build the enterprise business there. I remember our first customer who was spending half a million dollars with us annually. And that was it. You know, that was the only kind of large scale company we had and little by little, you know, there were many that spent a million and then there are some that spent 10. And I remember when we had a hundred million dollar annual deal there, which was super exciting. Yeah. No kidding. That's great. Yeah. So you saw, you were part of this progression. You joined when the company was, it must've been an early stage public company at that point. It was. And, um, and so again, your, your focus, I have to say it's a bit, it sounds my teeth are showing here, but I have to say there are engineers I know who are incapable of communicating with another human being. They're, they're just, they're so good quantitatively, it seems like there is a skill set that was lost to them in the course of their training. But you clearly not only bridge that gap, but in fact, you thrive on it. The outward facing responsibility. Is that I, fair? I owe this all to my chemistry lab professor in college who looked (laughs) at me with my college roommate who was also a chemistry professor and he's we were trying to like blow something up in the lab and he looked at us and said uh you guys will make horrible chemists and you'll hate the role you need to be more customer facing and both of us went off and got these hybrid degrees between uh and like computer science and business yeah and she's now a COO of a local financial services company, and here I am as the CEO. We were just talking, Linda, about your um, your stint at Salesforce, and you were there for several years, as yeah, I recall. Yeah, almost nine years. Nine years. And what was your exiting position by the time you left the company? I was executive vice president of the sales cloud, and we called ourselves CEOs and GMs of the product line. So is it is it correct to ask the question how many people were 
kind of under your umbrella in that division? Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's, it's one of, of these probably, highly yeah. matrix kind of organizations where you have, you know, a hundred, well, I even ran a portfolio of our acquired businesses. So there were CEOs of those acquired businesses rolling into me and then a handful of people on our core product. I don't know. I'd say five, 600, but then you had your finger in a ton. Yeah, of oh pods. yeah. yeah. I mean, the business went from one billion to three billion in three years. Wow! So I had kind of dire- directional responsibility for how we spent our marketing budget and how we were uh, going to market with that product and the engineering and product development. That that job really helped me become a CEO, where now I know what's going on in the product. Yeah, I know how to run. I have been running engineering, and I feel like I. You know, I'm not like a 20-year veteran in it, but I, I know what we need to get done. So I rapidly want to shift to um, your transition to Help Shift, but I do want to ask first, let's let's talk a little bit quickly about Help Shift as a company. Maybe you can paint just a profile of the company. Where is it located? How many employees? Is it venture-backed early stage or later stage? Um you know, any metrics that you can offer that would help us to understand what, what, what size and momentum HelpShift has? Sure. So we are headquartered here in San Francisco. We have about 60 folks here in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and we have nearly 100 in Pune, India. And So you're split across two split. continents. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, I'm sorry, how many in India? 100? Nearly 100. Yep. That's where we do our product development. Yep. And we just started to put employees closer to our customers. So we just opened a New York office and we just have hired our first couple of employees in the UK. So you're expanding. We are. As we speak. Yeah. um, 60% of our revenue comes from the US, 30% from Europe and 10% from the rest of the world. So we definitely had a strategy to get our help shift humans closer to our customers bigger that meant yeah. expansion east coast and in europe venture backed venture backed uh in the venture world we're a series b company mm-hmm. raised yeah. money last round we raised was in june of 2016 and we've raised 38 million so far and we're just coming up on 20 million annual run rate were, were you were you part of these financing transactions when it was going on i wasn't we have been very very efficient with our capital our previous ceo who's now um our chief strategy officer was the one who raised the series b got it okay so we'll come back yeah. to that because, but it helps me to understand i mean for people who are thinking you know what the hell is a series b company yeah. what does that mean in my mind linda it means kind of that shift between you know, full-on product development to you're turning a corner into product commercialization. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, we're sort of in our hyper growth phase. We grew nearly 100% um, from 17 to 18, and we have a plan to you know, grow north of 75% this year. So I like to inter- beat... intergalactic domination. Yeah, and I like to sort of always beat and raise, you know, yeah. set expectations correctly. Yeah, so we're in that we have we have a you know over 400 we have about 450 customers. So we wow. know, you know, we have product market fit. We our current customers have really adopted a lot of our AI and bots products. 
Um, they're seeing great success with that. Tremendous ROI when you put those products into play. Is it a pretty nice suite of customers you've got in the portfolio? Yeah, we do. <laughs> we f- primarily focus on B2C companies. So okay. gaming, retail, financial services, travel, transportation, IoT, consumer tech. Well, you cover a lot of waterfront. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. So you're, it's it really is a misnomer to characterize help shift as early stage. You're more like mid to late stage at this point, right? Well, I think we're still, from a revenue point of view, we're still in that transitionary time between mm-hmm. um, a growth stage. Uh, a, a Series B would be, do you have product market fit? Yeah. Improving that, and then Series C is like really that growth stage, which we're coming right up. We're coming right up on. That's cool. Yeah. So. Back to you. So the obvious question to ask is what persuaded you to make the jump out of this huge, iconic, uh, international company like Salesforce and jump into a smaller, much smaller company like HelpShift? I mean, that's a significant jump down to the, not the bottom of the food chain, but I mean, to a fairly early stage of development. Yeah. And I, you know, I've, I've kind of been fortunate enough to hit two companies in a just a hyper growth phase and at Salesforce things just got bigger and as you get bigger they get a little slower and I was just itching to to just get back to that rapid pace that adrenaline rush the adrenaline yeah, yeah. yeah. and a lot of, a lot of us that joined I'd say in the growth years were moving out of the company and different kinds of people were coming into the company at that time who were taking it from 13,000 people to, I mean, I think it's now 35,000 just in three years, lots more acquisitions, just a different person who does that. So I wanted to get back into startup land. So how did, how did you find help shift or did they find you? They found me. Was it a, a, a search firm that you, you responded to one of those phone calls that said, we'd love to talk to you about a potential position? Yeah. When I when I left Salesforce, I, I thought I might just retire and do boards and some consulting. And there were a lot of changes happening kind of with women in tech at the time. Um, the story around Ellen Powell. Yes. The we, Google- had, we had her former partner on the, on the program here. About three months ago, yeah. You know, there were a lot of women at Google kind of saying, hey, I don't feel well represented. And I took a step back and said, okay, do I have it in me to be a CEO? Because to do this, you've got to say the next, I'm going to give the next 10 years of my life to this company, minimally. Um, And I Which is probably a pretty accurate assessment in terms of the time block you know, planning for success, you need that amount of time to kind of establish yourself, establish the culture and, and run with it. Is that how you saw it? Yeah. I, I, I didn't want to just join a company and say, I want to take it from, I think when I joined, we we're seven and a half million to 20. I'm yeah. like, I want to find a company that I can take to a billion. And I think if we play our cards right and the market really starts to wake up, like your reaction to what we do is the same as everyone's. It just seems so obvious yeah. uh, that we would want to message our brands for customer support yeah. versus be on the phone or email. And, you know, if we play our cards right by the end of 2025 with these growth trajectory and plans that we have, we'll be a billion dollar company. And 
my belief is someone is, some company is going to be a billion dollar company as we shift from cloud applications that were somewhat replatform, a replatforming of what existed when I was at Siebel. If you look at the Siebel application and the Salesforce application, they're not too different in the way they look, the way they function. Mm -hmm. With HelpShift, it, the product just looks different. You know, we conceived of it differently. We conceived of it in this world of messaging, AI, bots, automations mm -hmm. for B2C. Um, so it is really different than what existed in the past. And, you know, every 10, 15 years is a tech cycle and, you know, who's going to be the, who are going to be the winners in this next tech cycle. So, come, so Linda, come back to the transition. So you accepted a phone call from a headhunter and the next thing you know, you're talking to somebody at HelpShift. And I thought, oh my God, CRM again. You know, I've been done there, it, done, been there yeah. done a lot of that. I thought I would be headed off to fintech or some kind of healthcare tech because mm -hmm. that's sort of what was happening. And as I dug into what HelpShift was doing, a couple of things came to mind. One was a tremendous scale that we could operate under. If you think of a gaming company that might have 200 million players in any given it's, month. It's ridiculous how big those companies are. Yeah. How Sorry. do you... Think of support for them. How how much deflection do you have to drive? How much automation do you have to drive? So it forced the company to look at these problems much differently. Mm -hmm. So a lot of startups deal with problems with scale with their with their product, right? Oh, now I'm going to try to sell to a company that has 500 employees or yeah. 2,000, and they kind of flame out because they didn't contemplate the scale really early on, and then they have to replatform and rebuild the product. Mm -hmm. That was not the case with HelpShift. Then the other, like picking a winning company, is you pick something with a huge total addressable market. And as we were talking about earlier, I mean, I like the sound of three hundred and fifty million. I like a ring to it. Billion, I mean, <laughs> or eighty billion on human yeah. capital costs. So kind of resonates. Yeah, and then and then uh, you always want to time technology shifts. I when I was at Siebel, it was all about custom off-the-shelf applications. You know, it was, it was the era of PeopleSoft and Oracle applications and SAP and Siebel. Wow, companies could buy off-the-shelf software. When I went to Salesforce, it was the cloud. So now I'm like, okay, this is the era of artificial intelligence. So uh, when you parachuted into the company, on basis of following up on that headhunter call, you met with one of the co-founders? I did. And, I met with a board member first. And I guess my question is, it's more of a, a teach, it's a teachable moment because companies do get to a point where they have a team of co-founders, frequently they're technical, and th there's an epiphany or a light bulb goes on and suddenly they think, you know, if we want to scale this, take this to the next level, we need to find somebody who's who's been there and done that. And is that, I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is that essentially where help shift was when they started talking with you? Yeah. And Abhinash Chapati, who's our co-founder, um, he's a really mature person. He, he knows what he loves to do. And I think he woke up and said, this company really has an opportunity. It's time for us to bring somebody in who can build out the strategy, the go to market plan, the marketing plan, uh, take it to multiple continents, work with investors, um, you know, kind of at a different level, not mm -hmm. like just venture investors, but ultimately working with 
big time investors. Yeah. And, you know, hopefully if we go public, Wall Street, uh, and we have a great relationship. And um, one of our. So that was a smooth transition then. I mean, effectively, because my thesis is that when you have a new executive, actually any new employee who comes into a company, the, the whole fabric of the company changes because you're establishing a relationship with every employee. So big or small, there are changes to the way the company works. And I assume that was true when you when you jumped in to help Smith. I would say two things have to happen. Yeah. One, the former CEO has to either get out of the way, meaning have a very limited role, or if they are going to be there, they have to be very gracious, which Avinash was, and have to be convinced. So if, if that former founder is waffling or on the fence, it I think work. it's not going to work. Abinash was truly gracious, truly bought in. And then on my end, I had to own it. I had to come in and like, I am the CEO. I am going to make decisions very, very quickly. Um, and you just have to be the CEO from the first day. Nobody can see you waffling or deferring to the former founders. You just have to take it so, and run with so it. So just to ask the the frank question, was that hard to do? I mean, it seems like when you walk, you're a stranger. You're walking into an organization with, you know, probably a few dozen employees at that point. And basically, you're looking around and saying, I'm the new sheriff in town. And you have to look steely-eyed, I assume, and make it stick. I mean, I don't want to – is that essentially how it works? Or is it more like, let's go out and have a cup of coffee and we can talk about how we feel? No. <laughs> uh, that's not my personality, really. Okay. So I would say, you know, I'm – I've been around the block a time or two. I, I really know what I'm doing. Um, yeah. And it kind of took me a while as a female leader, I think, to believe in myself. It's one of the learnings I wish I knew about myself much earlier is, you know, you got to be a little braggy. And um, I, I spent all this time, you know, I've been through a couple of crazy startups that had tremendous success. I was at the center of a lot of that. I felt like I tremendously contributed to those companies um, and learned a ton along the way. And I know CRM. So I, you know, it was somewhat of you the perfect... You check all the boxes. I yeah. did. And I felt like I can really help this company. If what I saw during the process of looking at the company was... 60% true that there was a lot of opportunity to create something truly special with this company. For people just joining us, you're listening to Business Radio. I'm Doug Collum speaking with Linda Crawford, our guest. She's the CEO of HelpShift, and we're talking about her transition as a seasoned, experienced executor, executive coming out of Siebel and then Salesforce and jumping into a a much earlier stage company called HelpShift. And I, I think it's a remarkable transition in and of itself because it's such a, a down market move in order to get that adrenaline flowing again. I assume that happened when you when you came on board. Suddenly you've got the, the rush of, I mean, it's, you know, the, the perils and promises of working in an early stage company. You're, you're it. You're the long pole in the tent, right? Yeah, well, I think what you find in a small company is you make a decision and you get the whole company on board in yeah. an hour or an afternoon. Um, 
in a big company, it may take a month. Yeah. It even even with strong CEOs like Tom Siebel and Mark Benioff, it's still turning a big ship. So was there a culture I mean, culture smolture? I mean, everyone talks about it. It's like, yeah, whatever. How important is culture? And when you came on board, did the culture of help shift change? Uh, yeah, it has to change because you have to take a company from being um, in a product ma- market fit type mentality to a growth mentality. So we use this plan, uh, annual planning tool called uh, V2Mom. It's something that Mark, I learned from Mark at Salesforce, vision, values, methods, obstacles, and metrics. I've heard of it before. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's a great blog post on the Salesforce website if anybody wants to check it yeah. out. Uh, and w- in 2018, one of our values was bold. And the other value was customer success and the other was growth mindset. And these were like essential things I needed to get the people who were going to get on this journey with me to believe. And, you know, when we build our plan for 2019, we didn't need to have those values anymore. Um, it, now one of our values is execution because we're now in yeah. that phase. Make it happen. Yeah. 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 Um, I, before we shift, I want to step back again to the, away from the trees back up to the forest. But before we do that, I notice that on the help shift board, you have four strategic investors. I mean, and they're all, you know, household names, Intel Capital, Microsoft, um, I'm, I'm missing two, but... Cisco and Microsoft. So, yeah, I mean, so that's that's unusual. You've got all these big 800-pound gorillas sitting, or, I assume they're on the board, or, or at least they're board observer seats. How how was the dynamic in the boardroom when you have major companies like that sitting at the table looking at you? <laughs> well, we uh, Microsoft and Cisco are board observers. Salesforce is sort of a silent observer, mm-hmm. and Intel's on the board. And uh, you know, I think that they believed in the vision of the company. Our venture investors have been with the company quite a long time, and I'm just fortunate enough that the people around the board table are real pros. Um, I think they recognize in me too that I I know a lot of. What you're talking. I know about. what I'm talking about. <clears throat> I know what I'm doing. I don't rely on them to operate the company. It's keeping them updated, helping them, helping. They help us with introductions to other potential investors or people who could be good customers of ours. But I think it's a mistake of a CEO to believe that the board is really going to help you operate your company. That's a fallacy. Most board members are on multiple boards. They're busy people. They want to help you, but you have to direct them. I mean, Ken, we could spend hours on that topic. (laughs) I mean, I've just in the course of my experience sitting at, at board meetings, but um, it is interesting because I do think corporate investors have a different perspective on a company than do financial investors. And it's, it's subtle. Sometimes it's subtle. Sometimes it's not so subtle, but apparently it's been a great relationship that you've established with y- your group of people as well. That was a big decision criteria in joining a company was, did I like the board members and what did the board members like each other? Yeah. 
I mean, the worst thing you can have is people fighting. Having a functional board is pretty important. So now we step back to the forest. So um, you've been there and done that. You've seen a bunch of companies in a lot of different contexts, and you're now working at a company that's on a pretty nice growth path. Um, I guess one question I would ask you is, you know, there are behaviors that work and you've established in your own kind of your own uh, experience what what behaviors do work. Are there any behaviors, if you're a new executive coming into a company for people who are listening, what shouldn't you do? What, what are some speed bumps that you for sure want to avoid when you're coming new into the company? I think you have to listen. But if you're brought into a situation like I was, you're there for a reason. I mean, things were rocky a bit, right? So you can't you can't sit around for too long because all the employees are looking at you and saying, expecting what is this things to happen. Get? Yeah, what, are they going to do something? Yeah. So you have to um, have a couple of pretty strategic first moves. And so um, you, you walked in kind of loaded for bear. You, you you listened and then you started developing your <laughs> in your mind some theses or some changes or some tweaks you wanted to make? I mean, you had a game plan. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the process of, I think for most boards hiring a CEO is at least a month long process, if not two or three. So you learn a lot along the way. You meet a fair number of people. You have somewhat of a good idea when you're going in Mm -hmm. and, uh, you, you have some idea about the talent level of the leadership team that exists and and what you may need to do in order to take the company to the next level. So it worked out. I mean, your your transition has been a, an effective one. Yeah, I I we've changed a lot. We've changed a lot in a year and a half. There's still more to do. Yeah. And um, you know, I think for us now the biggest challenge is hiring enough believers. This is a very mission-oriented company and we have to build mission-driven employees who believe in our story, will um, live through the the months that are amazing, and then if one month we don't make our number, it's okay because we're playing the long game. We're playing to win. We're playing to be the billion-dollar yeah, company. Yeah. And you know, sometimes you can get so caught up in the here and now that you don't see the big picture. And you just have to be relentless in your pursuit that you of what you're doing is going to change the world. I mean, I do think what we're going to do will change the way consumers interact with brands. And my hope is five years from now, we all go, remember when we used to call or email support? <laughs> yeah. You know, that seems crazy. Yeah. yeah. Um, coming back, stay, still at the forest level. I mean, yeah. so... We've had women on the on the program before, and I always like to talk about diversity because there's so much press about it or lack of it in the tech industry. I guess, I mean, for people who are listening, I mean, maybe maybe you can reflect. We've got a couple minutes left. Maybe you can reflect on your experience as being kind of the only female in the room, I'm sure, in a, in a number of circumstances. Always. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much um... – I think almost every job I've had, I've been either the only or one of a couple. And that's why doing this job is to help the women on our leadership team get to the next step. 
the women who work in the company to have some tips and tricks from me and others on how you know on how, how to, to navigate, how in, to navigate. A, in a in a guy oriented environment. Yeah, um, and to do it in a graceful way because I I think as women sometimes we have to. It's like we are viewing people are viewing us through a straw almost we have to be so perfect you can't be too aggressive then you're the b word you if you're not aggressive enough then you're not interesting you're low energy i would one of my interviews in this process of becoming a ceo i met with a venture capitalist one of the sand hill road gang and the feedback to the recruiter was i don't know if she's got enough guts because she didn't cuss. And I did slip the S-H word, and I felt badly about that. And then I thought, my gosh, I should have thrown in like 10 F-bombs. Maybe, <laughs> you know, they would have liked me better. But it's just like, who are you? Who do you have to be? You have to walk this really fine line yeah. in order to be just so. Yeah, you know, and, and part of what I want to do is like, we got to get rid of that. And, and you're sorry. Do you feel like you're accomplishing? There's a social change going on here as well. Yeah, you know, it's encouraging that I think the younger people are, the more used to diversity, um, and and that's a great thing. And I think when we talk about diversity at Help Shift, it's it's gender, but it's ethnicity, it's sexual orientation. Um, whether or not you have a disability of some sort, like all yeah. of those things have to come into play, not just gender diversity. Linda, we're out of time. I knew it was going to happen. Thanks. <laughs> it's, we've been speaking this hour with Linda Crawford of Help Shift. Thanks for joining us. It's been an interesting discussion. Very fun. Thank you. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.